the real estate man who helped create Harlem as a center of African-American life. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is frequent guest Jim Kaplan. How you doing, Jim? Okay. How are you, Bob? I'm okay. Uh, Jim Kaplan of New Rochelle, New York, has joined us discussing the neglect of historic sites in New Rochelle, dedicated to the memory of American Revolution writer Thomas Paine. Jim also worked for many years in Lower Manhattan and has joined us in the past to talk about the work of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. But today, a different topic. Let me just ask you, who was Philip Payton, and what did he do that makes him an important historical figure for Harlem in New York City? Payton was basically a businessman. He was a real estate, you might say, a developer, and he was critical to the development of black Harlem. In other words, to move blacks into Harlem and to create what was the largest and most important black community of the 20th century. And it's really an amazing story how he did it and why he did it. I became interested in it almost 20 years ago when I used to give walking tours for uh, the 92nd Street Y and Culture Now, and I gave some of Harlem, and I became fascinated by really the history of Harlem, which I think is not well known by many people, including including many African Americans, so at least this aspect of it. I wrote this article for the uh, uh, New York History blog, which really was a repeat of an article I'd written about 10 years ago for a, a publication called Last Exit Magazine, which I assume was out of business. But it's really a, a, a fascinating story, as and one which I think is more, uh, quite important, perhaps one of the most important stories in the history of uh, African Americans in New York State. Well, that is quite a tale. Let's go back to the days. I mean, Harlem wasn't always a black community, right? No, it originally, in a sense, was a Jewish community. Uh, starting in about the 1880s, it was uh, beginning to be developed as an upper-class community where uh, Jews, like blacks, and many were essentially restricted from uh, settling in, in certain areas because there was tr- significant anti-Semitism at the time, uh, particularly starting in the late, in 1879, when... Uh, uh, Joseph Seligman, who was one of the leading Jewish uh, financiers, was essentially told that he couldn't bring his family to the Grand Union Hotel in Saratoga. And that uh, he fought that, tried to fight that, but that was uh, ultimately not successful. And that set off a wave of things where Jews were restricted from going to certain hotels and, and living in certain areas. So the restrictions were not limited to blacks, but blacks very seriously were restricted because basically people in most neighbor, in many neighborhoods, wouldn't rent to them. But you said ironically, um, or I don't know if it was ironically, but in the actual fact, Jews were then able to settle in, in Harlem. How, how did that come to be? Well, I think what happened was there was a demand for uh, man for newly built luxury buildings, and uh, uh, they had the money. The Jewish community had done quite well, particularly on Wall Street. Many of the uh, this became an area where the landlords would sell to them, and and ultimately, as they sold more and more, it became more and more of a Jewish community. By about 1890, Harlem was the second largest Jewish community in the city, second to the Lower East Side and was uh, uh, the fourth largest in the country. 
And it was really kind of the upper class Jews who lived there, the, the wealthier Jews, the, the uh, Bernheimers or the, the, the uh, Seligmans. And the, uh, so it was quite an important Jewish community about the turn of the century. No blacks lived there because they were not, in a sense, permitted to uh, uh, buy, not, not by law, but by practice. Uh, mm-hmm. which was common in many ways throughout the city. Uh, this also and, split, to some extent, the Jewish community, didn't it? There was some sympathy for blacks, but on the other hand, uh, some of the Jewish people in Harlem believed that having African Americans in the neighborhood would decrease their property values. What happened was that the blacks uh, uh, were fairly tightly restricted uh, into certain areas like uh, Hell's Kitchen, uh, in the in the West 40s and 50s, and uh, uh, which was considered a, a bad slum, where also with the Irish. And in 1900, there was a riot in Hell's Kitchen where a young black man killed a a, a white policeman, and essentially, they they the uh, blacks were uh, attacked by Irish, and the Irish police force did very little. So it was. A very tense situation in uh, Hell's Kitchen, which was probably the largest area in the city where blacks lived. And they knew they wanted to get out of there, but they didn't really have the capability of doing that. And Jews were sympathetic. You know, many Jews were sympathetic to the problem that blacks had had in the Hell's Kitchen riot because many of them had uh, lower-class immigrant Jews that had just come from Russia where they had faced similar kinds of pogroms, if you will, which is what this was, uh, against themselves from the Cossacks. So they they were not, uh, uh, you know, they were somewhat sympathetic to the, the discrimination that blacks had faced. Uh, on the other hand, uh, many of the upper-class Jews, I believe, uh, you know, felt that if blacks moved into the, the neighborhood of Harlem, it would depreciate the uh, uh, property values, and it, it wouldn't be... A, a good thing. So they were very much split as to mm-hmm. uh, how, whether uh, blacks should come in. But the uh, uh, what happened was uh, there was a Mr. Payton was a uh, a young man. He was in his early 20s. He worked in a uh, real estate office in, uh, in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, he decided around 1902 to go off on his own to form uh, what he thought would be his own business. And that was very much under the encouragement of uh, the so-called Black Business Leagues organized by Booker T. Washington, who had this great belief that blacks should have their own enterprises. And he was uh, uh, bitten with that bug, you might say. But the problem mm-hmm. he had was he didn't have any clients. And uh, he was uh, about to be evicted and uh, lost all his... But he noticed that in northern Harlem in 1903... There was, uh, uh, it had been overbuilt. Houses around 134th Street were going uh, and begging for tenants. Now, of course, blacks couldn't move in there, but uh, according to him, there was this, uh, a situation developed where one landlord was fighting with another, presumably because they didn't have enough tenants, and he threatened to bring in blacks. And Peyton was advertising that he represented black tenants. Of course, he didn't have any but he to represent because he had no real estate to bring him to. So apparently he made a deal with this landlord whereby Peyton would buy 
would lease his building, which was vacant, and he would try to fill it up with blacks from Hell's Kitchen. Now, at the time, blacks were known to be considered to be good tenants, and they were paying rents, which were not much less than they would in, in a luxury area like Harlem. You know, it was just a question they couldn't get in. So uh, uh, Peyton was successful in filling this building, and uh, that was a good deal for the landlord because he now had a building that was filled. Uh, obviously, the blacks in Harlem who came up were absolutely amazed that they could live in a luxury area that they had been restricted. Can you just back up a bit and tell us about the origin of Philip Peyton? Uh, he came from Westfield, Massachusetts. Yes, Peyton was he was he was a northern black, and most blacks in the country lived in the south. But his family was from Westfield, Massachusetts. They were middle class or upper middle class. His father was a barber and apparently a businessman. And uh, uh, Peyton was kind of, uh, in certain respects, a ne'er do well. He wanted to went to college for one year, which was relatively unusual anyway. His brothers, by the way, went to Yale, which was very unusual. Uh, he uh, left college to kind of go off on his own and, and make his way in, in, in New York City, I think somewhat to the dismay of his parents. And that's when he got his job. He, got, he couldn't get a job uh, other than in a, a real estate company where he was kind of a, a janitor real estate agent. But he was able to observe how the New York real estate market worked. Uh, and also, I guess, have contacts with the churches and other people who would place uh, African-Americans in, uh, in various, uh, you know, in, in buildings in Hell's Kitchen. So he was somewhat familiar with the uh, market. He said he, he, the, he had to walk all the way up to 134th Street, to kind of, and he didn't have too much to do anyway when he was on his own uh, because he didn't have five cents for the subway. Uh, hmm. And he walked around and, you know, would look at things and see how... Uh, uh, and he happened to notice that these buildings in these luxury buildings in, in North Harlem were not renting and that their rents were, really weren't that much different than what it would have been for the slums of Hell's Kitchen. So, uh, uh, so that's when he formed his relationship with this landlord in, on 134th Street. Now, what happened was, uh, and he was about to be evicted, supposedly, he was uh, uh, but what happened was, once he was successful with that one building, other landlords on the block began to figure, well, maybe we should try the same thing. So pretty soon he had three or four people he was signed up with. And uh, the standard arrangement was that he would rent the entire building and then would sublease it to black tenants uh, for 10% more in, uh, uh, from Hell's Kitchen and would began bringing them up. And, uh, you know, as I said, this was for the people coming up from Hell's Kitchen. This was a great thing. They were suddenly living in a luxury area where they'd never been able mm -hmm. to live. And uh, Peyton was their landlord. For the landlords, it was working out, too, because they had filled buildings. I mean, so, so Peyton, who's uh, uh, had no business, was really about to go uh, broke and be evicted, soon had. A, a somewhat thriving real estate business in North Harlem. What happened was pretty soon this began to attack the attention of people in mm -hmm. Harlem. Well, what's going on here? Uh, you know, uh, what's this group of blacks doing here? So, uh, 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 so Peyton was approached by someone called the Hudson Realty Company, who 
had wanted to develop this area as a as a luxury white area, a Jewish area, presumably, and uh, they uh, they offered him a very high price to buy out all his leases. He thought that was great. It was more money than he'd ever seen. He now was on his way to being <laughs> a wealthy man until he discovered that the Hudson Realty Company immediately began evicting all the black tenants who he'd moved up from Hell's Kitchen. And they were... Uh, sense an agent called the Harlem Owners Protective Association as they began to notice what was going on and they immediately said well we're not going to have any blacks here in Harlem and appreciate her and they asked landowners in Harlem to uh, draft to uh, put covenants in all their deeds they would say that they couldn't rent to blacks and they wouldn't sell or rent to blacks so there was a very concentrated effort at uh, to, to keep the blacks out of Harlem. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. What happened was, with the money that Peyton took, I, he clearly could have walked away uh, as a wealthier man, but he, he discovered that the people across the street, a firm called Cassell and Goldberg, indicated to Peyton that they would sell their buildings, which presumably weren't doing that well, to Peyton. And, uh, and, Peyton uh, uh, bought them, and they must have known that Peyton immediately began evicting the white tenants in their building. That, that if, if uh, his activities hadn't already contact, created uh, interest, it certainly did then. And the uh, and ultimately, the uh, Hudson Realty Company was unsuccessful in developing the area as a white, and ultimately, it sold its buildings back to Peyton. Now, the interesting question is, who was Cassell and Goldberg, and why did they do that? They must have known that there was an effort by the white landlords to keep the blacks out of Harlem and not to to, uh, depreciate, or what was perceived to be depreciating the value. And and why, in the face of that, would they suddenly sell their buildings to Peyton? I don't know the answer to that. I, I would like to think they, like... Many Jews, probably Russian Jews, may have felt that if they could break discrimination against blacks and, and the, the restrictions against blacks in Harlem, they could break it. It could be broken throughout the city where Jews were restricted in the, hmm. uh, you know, in areas of the Bronx and right. Queens, and, and that this would be for everybody's advantage. It may have been that they just wanted to sell their buildings and they were essentially blockbusters. Uh, uh, you know, to uh, so so I don't know who they were or what their motivations were, but I think that was a critical element in the development of Black Harlem, which would be the development of the United States. Uh, because what happened after that was Peyton had tremendous prestige now among certain elements of the Black community, and he was known as a you know a really up and coming uh, real estate man, and he went to the established black community, which was uh, uh, affiliated with Booker T. Washington's National Negro Business Leagues in the city, and to the major black uh, businessmen, such as it were, it wasn't a, a widely, but there was some some business community that had money, and mm-hmm. uh, like John R. Thomas, a famous uh, uh, undertaker, and who had established businesses, and uh, kind of the Black Chamber of Commerce, if you want to call it that. And he said, listen, I need help. 
we've got to, we've got to, you've got to back me in this effort. And I think they were very skeptical. These were people mostly who'd come up from the South who uh, were very afraid that if they really confronted the white establishment in an area, in a, uh, a luxury suburb like Harlem, uh, that, that, you know, they, they, they could be attacked, there would be lynchings, etc. Caton mm-hmm. argued, being someone from the North, argued, no, these Jews aren't going to do that. You know, they're, they're afraid of being attacked themselves on racial matters. And, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not the type to, li- to lynch blacks because of... Uh, 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 we have to take a stand, and we have to take a stand now, and the place is in Harlem. And this is, you say you want to get us out of Hell's Kitchen and you want to eliminate discrimination, but you don't do anything about it. Here's your chance. Join with me, and we will, we will ultimately create a, a large, important black community. Black businessmen in the city who were, and I believe Booker T. Washington must have been instrumental in this, since they would have looked to him, said they would they would back Peyton, and they formed something called the Afro-American Realty Company. And the Afro-American Realty Company was capitalized with $500,000 initially, which was a large amount at that time, with all the major businessmen putting it, buddy. And they issued a prospectus calling on all blacks throughout the city to invest in the Afro-American Realty Company in race economics. And this way we will be successful in breaking into and creating a major black community in Harlem and in also breaking the discrimination against blacks in Harlem. So the Afro-American Realty Company initially had a capitalization of close to a million dollars. It was, Peyton was the president, but the board of directors was all the leading black businessmen in the city, or at least from, from the Booker T. Washington's group, and uh, uh, they began buying fairly aggressively other properties in Harlem, you know, mm-hmm. with their own money, so uh, sometimes through white agents, so people wouldn't know who they were or what their goals were, sometimes on their own, and they would immediately, once they bought a property, they would, they would evict the white tenants and began to bring in black tenants from, uh, from Hell's Kitchen or elsewhere. So pretty soon, there was a very significant group of black tenants in Harlem. The, obviously, the, the Harlem Protectors Owners Association, through their covenants and otherwise, tried to fight this. They, they were not successful. At one point, they even tried to make a deal where they would blacks would stay within a certain area. But they would have, Peyton would have none of it. Peyton said, we're here to stay. I want to take this uh, into the 20th century or more into the 20th century. You write that in 1908, Afro-American Realty ran into trouble because of a recession. Ultimately, the the company failed then, didn't it? Yes. What happened was in 1907, Booker T. Washington's uh, uh, Afro-American Business League gave an award, or they would annually have awards, and they cited Peyton in their annual as the most important black businessman in the country. Uh, and so Peyton, who came, who came from 1903 from nothing, is now being hailed by the, the, the leading black, Booker uh, T. Washington, as the, mo- the most best example of black business in the country and his, uh, for his entrepreneurial effort. 
1908, there was a recession, and uh, Peyton, who was an exuberant fellow and, and often said he may have overbought, essentially what happened was it became difficult for him to maintain his, uh, his properties because of the loans and whatever, and the rents were pretty high, actually, for uh, blacks coming up to maintain them there. He, he was not able to service his debt. He, essentially, the, the, the Afro-American Realty Company went under, which was a great embarrassment to uh, uh, their Booker T. Washington tried to get Andrew Carnegie to back him, but Carnegie said, no, this is a profitable entity. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a charitable entity. Uh, Washington himself was going to put up his own money, but uh, for whatever reasons, they were not able to uh, successfully, and, and, and the company failed. Now, that meant that everybody who'd invested in it with his high hopes of, uh, and, and of course, they advertised that they would give you a 10% return, got nothing. And Peyton was sued for fraud, and uh, you know there were people who claimed that he he uh, he uh, had mismanaged the company, et cetera. So the Afro-American Realty Company uh, went under, which was a great uh, embarrassment. Uh, let me just uh, get you to focus on what happened after uh, Peyton's uh, problems w- with his company. The uh, black churches got involved. And there was a, a big um, uh, real estate deal in 1911 where uh, previously all white residences on 135th Street were purchased. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure, sure. What happened was uh, uh, even though the Afro-American Realty Company went under and the investors lost their money, uh, it succeeded in the, fact, in the fact that they were close to 2,000, maybe more than that. Uh, uh, blacks, and they had 25 buildings, living in Harlem. And this really obviously totally changed the character of the community. Obviously, I assume many Jews were nervous and would move out, uh, but they weren't going back. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, uh, the fact was they were there and they were there to stay. Uh, later, his efforts were uh, picked up by two of his lieutenants, John E. Nail and the uh, uh, Henry Parker, and uh, uh, who were agents for the black churches, who essentially continued his uh, continued to buy properties in Harlem and continued to move blacks into those properties, and uh, uh, there was still a, a a fight, you might say, between the Harlem Protective Owners Association and the the, the black interests, but uh, uh, ultimately, uh, particularly St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which was one of the wealthiest churches that had property around Penn Station, which had been condemned. Uh, and they got together, and they there was one group of property on 135th Street, which the white, the Harlem Protective Owners Association had viewed as the, the, like the Maginot Line to keep uh, uh, blacks out of northern Harlem. One day, an agent of the uh, Parker uh, went to uh, uh, essentially bought this whole group of property, group of residential properties, which is still there on 135th Street, right near the Schomburg. And uh, uh, it paid a very high price. It was sometimes called the million-dollar houses. I think it was about six, $700,000, which was a very high price for that. But once it gained control of that, it immediately began put up signs saying, renting to people of all races. And that was the symbol that blacks had now broken that line and 
essentially after that, the Harlem Protective Owners Association collapsed. Mr. Payton subsequently did resurrect his business. I'm kind of just referring to the article you wrote for the New York uh, Almanac. Uh, and his one of his last deals was in 1917 uh, for six apartment houses uh, renamed after black heroes. And uh, Payton died in 1917 of from cancer, and he was only 41. He did all this when he was a young guy. Well, he tried to reestablish himself. I, I noticed that in the, actually, the first issue of the NAACP's crisis had a, a full-page ad from Philip A. Payton and Company. But he began to try to reestablish himself, and I think uh, this was his final deal, which was going to be a very successful deal, we thought. He named them for all for black, important black leaders like Phyllis White Wheatley and uh, Christmas Atticus, and uh, uh, and then unfortunately he died of cancer in 1941, and today he's virtually unknown as far as I know. And there's no there's no monument to him, there's no uh, uh, plaque to him, and there's no plaque to the uh, million dollar houses on 135th Street. Jim Kaplan's story on African-American Harlem real estate agent Philip Payton first appeared as an essay on New York uh, Almanac. Uh, Jim Kaplan also has a great interest in preserving New Rochelle historic sites that remember American Revolution writer Thomas Paine. Jim worked for many years in Lower Manhattan and has joined us in the past to talk about the work of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. The Historians Podcast is made possible by your contributions to our GoFundMe campaign. You can link to GoFundMe on our website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Now a story from the Mohawk Valley. Amsterdam Barber was African-American political leader. An Amsterdam barber, Robert Jackson, was an African-American political leader in the late 1800s. Montgomery County historian Kelly Yakabuchi Farquhar says it's possible that Jackson had underground railroad connections as well. In the late 1800s, there were newspaper accounts describing Jackson's role in what were then called colored conventions of the Montgomery County and state level. According to research compiled by historian Christopher Filippo, Jackson was one of five men appointed at a statewide convention of black Republicans to prepare an address to voters in 1872. In 1879, Jackson was on a committee at the Colored Men's Montgomery County Convention in Fonda, He was named an at-large delegate to the group's state convention in Elmira. In August 1884, Jackson delivered a rousing speech in support of Republican presidential candidate James Blaine and his running mate John Logan at a celebration of emancipation, which was held in Canajoharie. Other events that day included a parade, music, and a reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. The Amsterdam Daily Democrat reported that Jackson's speech was enthusiastic and applauded throughout, quote, Mr. Jackson clearly and forcibly reviewed the history of his people since the war, showing the marked difference between the attitudes of the two great parties. The Republicans, he said, 
had given them the treatment they deserved and done all in their power to dignify their condition, whereas the policy of the Democrats toward them has resulted only in their detriment. Blaine and Logan, the candidates that Robert Jackson backed, were defeated. They lost the presidential election that year to New York Governor Grover Cleveland and his running mate, Thomas Hendricks. Cleveland was the first Democrat to be elected president since 1856. He carried New York State by a margin of just over a 1,000 votes to clinch the election. In 1886, the Amsterdam newspapers reported that Barbara Robert Jackson was spending time Sunday with friends in Mineville. Jackson died in February of 1893. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.